Welcome to Russian History Retold, Episode 293, The Russian Civil War, A People's Perspective. Last time, we did an interview with Professor Rolf Hellebust about his latest book, How Russian Literature Became Great. Today, we go darker and discuss the Russian Civil War. But not the battles or the events, but from a people's perspective, which will include comments by Lenin, Trotsky, and other leaders. Still, we will delve more into what the people of Russia, Ukraine, and the rest of the soon-to-be Soviet Union went through and what they thought and felt. This series, which will include the Russian Revolution and the Crimean War, will be three of the darkest I have ever covered in the past almost 14 years. Still, I knew I had to cover this because one of my tenets in teaching history is that if history doesn't make you uncomfortable at one time or another, you are not teaching history. I guarantee you some of the stories you're about to hear, first-hand and second-hand accounts, will be challenging to listen to. It will also give you all a better understanding of the Russian people and what they have endured during the cataclysmic events of their history. Before we move on, I want to read a few quotes I found in the book, Former People, The Final Days of the Russian Aristocracy by Douglas Smith, in his chapter about the Civil War. The first is from Vladimir Lenin in his typical verbose manner. Quote, the path of history is beyond the understanding of those who have been consigned to the routine of capitalism, of those who would have been defeated by the mighty crash of the old world, by the cracking, the noise, the chaos, or apparent chaos, of the collapse of the age-old structures of czarism and bourgeoisie, of those cowed by class warfare taken to its most extreme by its transformation into a civil war, a true holy war, and not in some priestly sense of the word, but in its most humane understanding, a holy war of the oppressed against their oppressors, a holy war for the liberation of the workers from all oppression. The second is from Leon Trotsky, who in his typical direct manner, was kind of the polar opposite of Lenin. Quote, Yes, long live civil war. Civil war for the sake of the children, the elderly, the workers, and the Red Army. Civil war in the name of direct and ruthless struggle against counter-revolution. And third, we have Maxim Gorky, who saw the civil war for what it really was. Quote, we are heading for a total civil war, and it seems that the war will be a savage one. Oh, how hard it is to live in Russia. We are all so stupid, so fantastically stupid. One of the first effects of the Russian Civil War was the mass movement of people throughout the Russian Empire. Some were fleeing for their lives. Some were trying to get away from the fighting. Some were trying to find a place where they could feed themselves and their families. 
While this excerpt from Michael Bulgakov's novel, The White Guard, is a fictionalized account of some of the turmoil and chaos that began with the Bolsheviks overturning the provisional government, it does make for a compelling picture of what was happening in Kiev in 1918. It provides a glimpse into the wide breadth of people giving up everything to escape the Reds. Quote, Among the refugees came gray-haired bankers and their wives, skillful businessmen who had left behind their faithful deputies in Moscow with instructions to them not to lose contact with the New World, which was coming into existence in the Muscovite kingdom. Landlords who had secretly left their property in the hands of trusted managers. Industrialists, merchants, lawyers, politicians. There came journalists from Moscow and Petersburg, corrupt, grasping, and cowardly. Prostitutes, respectable ladies from aristocratic families and their delicate daughters. Pale, depraved women from Petersburg with carmine-painted lips. Secretaries of civil service department chiefs, inert young homosexuals, princes and junk dealers, poets and pawnbrokers, gendarmes and stresses from the imperial theaters. Of course, the people who would also suffer greatly would be the millions who fought in the war. Many who would go into battle had no ideological side, white or red. They hated the Tsar and the Bolsheviks. Most didn't get to pick a side to fight on. They were dragged into the war based on who was nearby and needed some additional soldiers. Most were ill-trained, or, more likely than not, not trained at all. The conditions that these men fought in were pretty brutal, but those who were injured were in for the worst of times. Leon Trotsky, the head of the Red Army, wrote this while touring the Southern Front in June 1919. Quote, Transports arrived at Liskey Station containing wounded men who were in frightful condition. The trucks were without bedding. Many of the men lay wounded and sick, without clothes, dressed only in their underwear, which had long remained unchanged. Many of them were infectious. There were no medical personnel, no nurses, nobody in charge of the trains. One of the trains, containing over 400 wounded and sick Red Army men, stood in the station from early morning until evening without the men being given anything to eat. It is hard to imagine anything more criminal and shameful. This type of treatment makes the statistics of the number of desertions unsurprising. In 1918, the number of desertions from the Red Army ranks was about 1 million. In 1921, it reached 4 million. During the most crucial phase of the Civil War, 1919, men were abandoning their posts faster than the commissars in charge of recruitment could replace them. Trust me, when the means that they used to force men into the Army were pretty brutal, Not only would they shoot men who refused service, but they also had no hesitation in destroying whole villages and everyone in them in retaliation for not providing enough men. Conditions in the cities were also appalling. 
Here is what Emma Goldman, a famous anarchist, reported seeing in St. Petersburg shortly after arriving after being expelled from the United States in 1920. Quote, It was almost all in ruins, as if a hurricane swept over it. The houses looked like broken old tombs upon neglected and forgotten cemeteries. The streets were dirty and deserted. All of, like, had gone from them. The population of Petrograd before the war was almost two million. In 1920, it had dwindled to 500,000. The people walked about like living corpses. The shortage of food and fuel was slowly sapping the city. Grim death was clutching at its heart. Emaciated and frostbitten men, women, and children were being whipped by the common lash. The search for a piece of bread or a stick of wood. The Russian famine of 1921 and 22 was part of the tragedy caused by the Civil War. The nation was in the grips of war communism, where anything could be confiscated from the people, including food and clothes, to support the war effort. This would cause untold suffering for ordinary people, especially when faced with starvation. Children, though, seemed to suffer the greatest, as this account from a visiting Quaker from the book Natural Disasters. Quote, as a home, it was intended for 50 children. But yesterday, 654 children were crammed within its walls. On such days, as many as 80 are brought in. The stench inside was indescribable. As we entered, we became aware of the continuing wailing sound that goes on day and night. In each room, at least 100 children were packed in like sardines in canvas beds. The typhus cases, some of them completely naked, lay on straw in a separate room. They had neither bedding, medicines, nor disinfectants, though we had been able to give them a little soap and clothing. They had no doctor. Each morning, the attendants picked out the dead from the living and put them in a shed to await the dead cart, which every day makes its rounds. The formerly wealthy people who decided against all advice to leave the country would suffer as well. Yelena Sheremetev recalled, quote, We were cold and hungry, but at least we all lived together. We put in a little iron stove, and I would go for water over on Ostojenka Street. I would freeze on the way back and duck into entranceways to try to warm up. We used whatever we could find, whatever we came across, to heat the stove. We would make tea in our communal kitchen. Our chef boiled a thin potato soup or cooked up some runny millet and dished it out with one bowl for each of our three families. Gurevichs, Sabarovs, and Petrovici. And that was all. One of the groups that were persecuted by both the Red and the White armies were the Jews. The Bolsheviks viewed them as being part of the bourgeoisie class, as many were merchants and keepers and moneylenders. This was especially true in Ukraine, 
as the peasant soldiers believed that Jews were all wealthy and were the reason that they were poor. This was something that the czars, especially Alexander III and Nicholas II, did little to dispel. In actuality, they supported the pogroms against the Jewish population during their reigns. When talking about the Bolsheviks, as Phyges puts it in his book, A People's Tragedy, quote, it was common for the pogrom leaders to license their soldiers to loot Jewish shops and houses, murdering and raping the Jews in the process, and allowing the local Russian population to help themselves to a share of the spoils. Under the pretext that the Jews had grown rich from speculating on the economic crisis and their wealth should be returned to the people, the Bolsheviks called this looting the looters. As for the White Army, they blamed Jews for the Bolshevik Revolution. If they captured a city or town that had been previously under Red Army control, they would give the soldiers a few days to rob and kill any Jews that they found. One of the worst atrocities was committed in Kiev on October 1st through the 5th, 1919. Cossack soldiers under General Dragomirov went door-to-door demanding money from Jewish families raping women and young girls, as well as killing anyone they saw fit to die. Thousands suffered at the hands of the ardently anti-Semitic white army leaders. How many Jews were killed by both sides is purely guesswork. No one thought it was necessary to count. The official number of Jewish murder victims is 31,071. This was the number of burials recorded. Early on, there were claims that the number was closer to fifty to 60,000. But an investigation reported in 1920 claimed that there were more than 150,000 deaths and 300,000 additional victims. One of the biggest problems during the Civil War, facing both the Reds and the Whites, was corruption. It was a bigger problem on the Bolshevik side and threatened to undermine the entire revolution and could hinder the ability to recruit fighters from the ranks of the lower classes. What the people saw were those with deep Bolshevik connections behaving very much like the aristocrats of old. A report to Lenin in September 1919 said the following, quote, Money flows freely from the coffers of the Petrograd Soviet into the pockets of the party leaders. The hungry workers see the well-dressed tsarinas of the Soviet czars coming out with pockets of food and being driven away in their cars. They say, it's just the same as it was in the old days with the Romanovs and their Fraulein, Madame Vyrobova. They were afraid to complain to Zinoviev, since he is surrounded with henchmen with revolvers who threaten the workers when they ask too many questions. To better understand the absolute corruption that went on, we have to go to the numbers. In Moscow, 5,000 Bolsheviks lived in the Kremlin of one of the swankier hotels. This came with over 2,000 servants. And all of it was free. Lenin had an estate in Gorky that once belonged to General Morozov. Trotsky occupied the former estate of the Yusupovs. Each Bolshevik higher-up had their own lavish home. 
The Civil War was used to take from the former wealthy aristocrats and turn them into the new elite class. Of course, one of the most famous events of the Russian Civil War was the execution and murder of the Romanov family in Ekaterinburg on July 17, 1918. The Soviet leadership claimed that the decision to kill the family was exclusively made by the local Bolsheviks. We now know that this was definitely not true, and that Lenin absolutely had a say in it, and likely ordered it. But what significance did this have in the greater scheme of things? As Feiges puts it, quote, it was a declaration of the terror. As Trotsky would say, quote, we must put an end once and for all to the papist Quaker babble about the sanctity of human life. The terror during the Civil War was carried out by the Cheka. As Felix Dzerzhinsky would say about his organization, quote, the Cheka is the defense of the revolution as the Red Army is, as in the Civil War. The Red Army cannot stop to ask whether it may harm particular individuals, but must take into account only one thing, the victory of the revolution over the bourgeoisie. So the Cheka must defend the revolution and conquer the enemy, even if its sword fails and falls occasionally on the heads of the innocent. It is this last comment that spread the terror into every city, town, hamlet, or countryside farm that the Red Army captured during the war. They wanted to find and kill anyone who they deemed to be counter-revolutionary. The problem was, who was the supposed enemy of the revolution? No one really knew or came up with a definition. This made the terror even more random in nature. Zenadia Zemchushina wrote an eyewitness account of the Red Army marching into her village in the Kuban region of southern Russia. Quote, They were dusty, dirty, and shabby, and had cartridge belts draped across their chests, rifles slung over their shoulders, and revolvers resting on their hips. Most of them were drunk because the first thing they always did was to loot the wine cellars. At five o'clock, a rally was convened in front of the town hall. The commissar, who was completely drunk, caught sight of the priest in the crowd. He told him to come closer and then, without saying a word, pulled out his revolver and killed him on the spot. The crowd gasped. The kindly old priest was beloved by the townspeople. With one shot, the commissar had quenched the flickering hope that the government was a true and just power. After the brutal murder of the priest, there were no more illusions. The Bolsheviks had shown their true face. As the poet Gippius wrote, quote, there was literally not a single family that had not had someone seized, taken away, or disappear as a result of the Red Terror. They used this as a means of terrorizing the entire population into submission. Phygenes mentions the following about 
who would be rounded up and jailed. One former inmate of the Butyrka jail in Moscow recalls seeing politicians, ex-judges, merchants, traders, officers, prostitutes, children, priests, professors, students, poets, dissident workers, and peasants. In short, a cross-section of society. An example of how callous the Bolsheviks were when it came to human life is author Orlando Feige's story. Quote, In 1919, during a session of the Snovnarkom, Lenin wrote a note and passed it to Dzerzhinsky. How many dangerous counter-revolutionaries do we have in prison? Dzerzhinsky scribbled, about 1,500, and returned the note. Lenin looked at it, placed the sign of the cross by the figure, and gave it back to the Cheka boss. That night, 1,500 Moscow prisoners were shot on Dzerzhinsky's orders. This turned out to be a dreadful mistake. Lenin had not ordered the execution at all. He always laced a cross by anything he had read to signify that he had done so and take it into account. As a result of Dzerzhinsky's simple error, 1,500 people lost their lives. Can you imagine the fear the people of the about-to-be-Soviet Union felt during this period of the Red Terror? You would have to go back to the time of Ivan the Terrible and his Opranichki to match the Cheka in its brutality and murderous behavior. According to Feige's, quote, although no one knew the precise figures, it is possible that more people were murdered by the Cheka than died in the battles of the Civil War. Aside from the Jewish population of Russia and Ukraine, another group of people who were targeted by the wrath of the Red Army were the Cossacks. In January 1919, the program of de-Cossackization would begin. It would occur in two waves, the first starting in February 1919 through March, and the second between October and November 1920. The Cheka went out and destroyed Cossack towns, they then stopped, deported, executed, or sent men to work in the mines of the Donbass. The rest of the population was subjected to forced removal and sent to other regions of the Soviet Union. It would be an arduous journey for the Cossacks and their families, with supply problems that would lead to many collateral deaths from hunger and epidemics. As you have heard, the Russian Civil War was one of the incredible brutality, causing incalculable amounts of death to the fighting, the indiscriminate murders, as well as those caused by famine and disease. The war would be a harbinger of things to come under Stalin. Fear would be an everyday emotion for the people of the Soviet Union, something that, while present under the czars, would be amplified to a degree never seen before. Maybe this will give you an insight into what is happening in Putin's Russia today. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Join me next time when we cover the people's experience during the Crimean War. I know this is somewhat backward according to the timeline of events. Still, I wanted you to have a feeling of what was to come with this war as a setup for the uncertainties that beset the people during the Revolution of 1917 which we will cover in the episode afterwards. 
So, until next time, das vidanya i spasiba za venjamanja.